You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. I'm an advocate for women's rights in childbirth, founder of Birth Monopoly, co-creator of the Exposing the Silence Project, a national photography project on birth trauma, and former vice president of Improving Birth, the nation's largest consumer-based maternity care advocacy organization. You can learn more about my work at birthmonopoly.com. Today, we are going to be talking to Susan Jenkins. She is a, a respected attorney known around the country in certain circles. Um, she's a mentor of mine and has been for several years and someone I deeply respect and look up to. And Susan has focused much of her law practice on working with midwives and other health professionals for about 35 years now. And prior to that, she worked for the Federal Trade Commission in the Bureau of Competition um, in the healthcare competition section. They focused a lot on the American Medical Association, believe it or not. And um, she's got some really interesting stories about that time in her life, including the time she argued a case before the U.S. Supreme Court when she was a, well, Susan, a, a brand new lawyer, right? Pretty much so, yes. Yeah. Well, tell, I, I've already heard this story and I just love it. Will you tell everyone that story? Oh, d- delighted, Kristen. Glad to do it. Well, listen, hello and hello to your listeners as well. Thanks a lot for um, you know, for listening to me. I'm, I'm really glad to, uh, to come on your show, Kristen. Thank you. Uh, so, okay, so the Supreme Court. Well, I had uh, worked for the Federal Trade Commission for a few years. And um, during that time, we saw all the really nefarious things that organized medicine was, was doing to prevent competition with other types of health professionals, including midwives. And this had to do with health insurance And it had to do with the fact that the New York State chiropractors back in the 1980s, because that's when this was, were so desperate to be able to get insurance coverage for their members that they agreed to keep the prices down. They agreed to set the prices their members would charge so that it wouldn't be so high that the insurance companies wouldn't accept it. My client um, was a Park Avenue chiropractor in New York City whose clients principally were the New York City Ballet. And they had Union Labor Life Insurance was their, their, their health insurance company. And the Chiropractic Association was fixing prices with them. And so local attorney in New York City had brought the case. I had been assigned to be the lawyer from the government that was helping them behind the scenes. That really happens. And... Um, But in the meantime, as the case moved up toward the Supreme Court, um, I left the FTC because um, an an administration came in that wasn't very positive toward antitrust. So I uh, went into private practice and the case, as it happened, went to the Supreme Court. And so I was brought in as a second attorney on the case. And then my client fired the main attorney, and let me know like maybe two months before the argument, said, Susan, I fired Don, you're it. And I was <laughs> terrified. I had... <laughs> I, that makes I me get nervous just thinking about it. <laughs> I've been in court once 
in my <laughs> career before that had been, you know, like this desk lawyer with the government. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I had to not only, you know, really rehearse on all the cases, but, you know, um, rehearse on being able to just address the court. And all I had had was moot court and law school back in Columbia. So it was, anyway, my friends at the FTC helped. This was 1982. So O'Connor had just, Justice O'Connor had just gone on the court. So my daughter went to an all-girls school in Washington, D.C. Her history class, her civics class came and, and came to the Supreme Court that day. I had this- That is so incredible. But I was terrified. And um, <laughs> I mean, literally, my palms are sweating right now. <laughs> Thinking well, about this. <laughs> well, I, I had an out-of-body experience. I mean, I ended up watching myself do this from this, you know, a corner of the courtroom. Um, back then, and, and, and still, I think the Solicitor General, who argues for the United States at the Supreme Court, probably still does. Men used to wear like tails and morning coats with straight pants to argue at the Supreme Court. It was mm -hmm. like this very, you know, traditional. And the Chief Justice at the time, Berger, had complained that, you know, so many lawyers were looking sloppy and just wore anything. And he didn't want them to wear any color shirt but white. He was like really a, a stickler. And so, and so I went out, I went to Neiman Marcus and I bought a silk, black silk suit and a white silk blouse. I spent more than I spent for my wedding dress a few months later. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, okay, I'm ready for Chief Justice Berger. Well, I guess I wasn't because he hated my argument. But I did really well, actually. I really did pretty well on this. They tell me, I don't remember <laughs> because I was over in the corner. But, um, but he, he asked me several hypothetical questions, which is what, you know, what judges do during oral arguments. And I gave him answers and he didn't like them, even though they were the correct answer. And after three or four times, he picked up all the papers in front of him, all the briefs, and kind of tossed them up in the air with a gesture of disgust. You can imagine how I felt just like sinking through oh, the floor. Like he had, a, he had a temper tantrum? He had a little temper tantrum, that's right. And, um, and but you have to like just soldier on, right? And so mm -hmm. I did for 20 minutes, I had given 10 minutes of my time to the Solicitor General because the United States Department of Justice was on the same side as my client on because they were against price fixing and in favor of um, narrowing the exemption for insurance companies. Um, if there's, uh, um, if, if people wonder about that, okay, price fixing for too high as well as too low is still illegal. It's a, it's a felony actually under the federal antitrust laws. Um, and the idea is that something that might be a ceiling can very easily become what we call a floor. And so all price fixing is a felony. Anyway, we ended up winning. I had, as I said, I had my cheering section. Um, <laughs> we won six to three. Justice Berger wrote the dissent, but it was only three, so that's okay. <laughs> and um, and it, it really ended up becoming something for precedent. I even see it cited every now and then. So there you go. <laughs> there's, there's a funny epilogue um, to that. Yeah. You know that story, but why don't we save that toward the end? Yes. It, yeah. It really we'll, we'll come back and revisit that. It's, it's, it's actually my favorite part of the story, although... It's 
the actual arguing before the Supreme Court is obviously the most impressive. I was about 33 or 34, and mm -hmm. I met a woman who was in her late 20s and argued a case at the Supreme Court um, wow. right around that same time, but there probably hadn't been all that many. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was, it was, it was scary. <laughs> <laughs> so the takeaway, it was scary. <laughs> it was scary, but it was worth it, you know, and um, looking back, I'm like, I'm glad I had the experience. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, I think the epilogue honestly um, makes the story, but we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that at the end. Another interesting anecdote that you shared with me was um, while you were at the Federal Trade Commission, uh, you, you had how been- How I got involved with Midwest. Yeah. Not many people, I, I don't know, I'm probably really the only lawyer who actually did this <laughs> for what it's worth, um, has midwives as their um, primary client base in, in mm -hmm. the US. Um, I practice midwifery law, I guess mm -hmm. is, is how to put it. And that started with me when I was still at the FTC. Um, and uh, you probably won't be surprised, birth monopoly lady, to hear that <laughs> even back in the 1980s and 70s, the American Medical Association and Organized Medicine was um, conducting anti-competitive practices to prevent competition from um, independent uh, allied health professionals in various categories. And so a study was being, we, we commissioned, we at the FTC commissioned a study on ways in which certain types of health professionals, including midwives, were having their practice restricted. And at the time, the focus was on nurse midwives, um, in, and specifically in New York City. But then we had a case in D.C., which is where the FTC office is located in the District of Columbia, of some um, home birth midwives, nurse midwives, who had gotten privileges at one of the big local hospitals and then had lost their privileges when the OB department voted to take away their privileges. And um, they had filed a complaint with the FTC and I wasn't handling one of my colleagues was, but I learned about it. And I learned that my gynecologist was their backup physician, but had refused to cooperate with the investigation, had refused to be, you know, uh, wow. interviewed or to, or to help in any way. So the next time I saw him, you know, I kind of gave him a little lecture about civic duty and stuff. And he was like, Susan, I'm terrified. I got in enough trouble just backing the midwives. If I came forward and, 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 and helped with the government investigation, I would be basically dead in, you know, in my OB practice. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd be retaliated so badly against by organized medicine. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's that's true mm -hmm. today. And is that what sparked your interest? Absolutely, absolutely. And so shortly after I left the the commission, my initial clients were um, advanced practice nurses, including nurse midwives or the anesthesia providers, uh, nurse anesthetists. One of my first clients actually was. Um, the president, the President Clinton's mother, who was a nurse anesthetist in, in Arkansas. And um, ah. yeah, that's the first President Clinton, not 
not what would have been the second president Clinton. It's <laughs> done differently. Um, but yeah, um, his mom was a nurse anesthetist in, uh, in Hot Springs and had some problems with an anesthesiologist at her hospital. But in 1983, wow. um, a law was passed in the District of Columbia, which um, prohibited hospitals from denying privileges to nurse midwives simply because they were nurse midwives. And mm -hmm. the law included nurse practitioners, um, the nurse anesthetists, and podiatrists, and clinical psychologists. It was a very good law. And I helped with the coalition that worked for it. And after the law was passed and, 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 uh, and debated against the president of the DC Medical Society on the radio. Um, wow. And, uh, and we won. And, um, and then I, I had kind of told people, you know, well, there's going to be a test case. I'd be glad to represent the test case pro bono, frankly, because I thought it would be good publicity for my new law practice. Uh -huh. and, um, and the person who stepped forward was a nurse midwife. And we, um, we together, uh, you know, it challenged the hospital. And um, the woman who's, the, the council member whose bill it had been that passed, um, ended up being the deciding factor um, because the hospital had refused to even give her an application. Mm -hmm. And um, she, she got in touch with the head of the hospital and said, you know, we have a $40 million bond issue right now and your hospital is included in that bond. You're not going to see a cent if you continue to be a scoff law. And that's how we got the first nurse midwife getting the first hospital privileges. Wow. Wow. Um, but it made me realize that the political side of things, the, the legislative side of things, mm -hmm. was as and probably more important than court because um, you, could, you, know, you could bring an antitrust lawsuit on behalf of an individual nurse midwife or practitioner who had been um, you know, discriminated against or, or prevented from practicing because of the actions of organized medicine, but you only helped that one and it was very expensive and took a long time. Mm -hmm. Or you could go and get legislation and, and help everyone, help mm -hmm. the entire profession. Well, that, that kind of takes us into um, the next chapter of your work. Let's, well, let's take a little break. yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How neat. <laughs> um, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back to talk about that. Okay, very good. Thanks. And we're back with Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. Susan, why did midwives have so many problems with this? Ah, so why do midwives need lawyers? Well, the problem is that about 100 years ago or more, um, organized medicine in the United States was um, busily consolidating down to the American Medical Association and the allopathic um, school of medicine. This probably started around the the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that organized medicine did at that time was 
secure the, the idea of licensing laws for physicians. You got physicians licensed with very, very broad scopes of practice that, that took in every possible thing you could think of doing in healthcare. That became part of the scope of practice of medicine. So they, they self-defined their parameters, essentially. They self-defined medicine as being all of healthcare, exactly. And they were, they were the only ones who had licensing laws, so you know, no one else was looking for that. So they, they took it on and they were successful. And they used that then to, to get rid of or to minimize or marginalize uh, all their competitors, uh, you know, uh, osteopaths, uh, naturopaths, chiropractors, er, er, you know, everyone else. And then they turned their sights toward midwives and decided, well, gee, medicine should have charge of childbirth. And so they conducted a very, very successful um, campaign against midwives, which was part attacking them as being ignorant foreigners, um, ethnic minorities in the South. It's shameful mm-hmm. what, was, what was done to African-American midwives who had been the principal caregiver for, for both, you know, black and well, white. And, and even at a time when um, they wouldn't, they refused to treat black women in hospitals. Right, exactly, exactly. And, and there was just this campaign to do away with midwifery and to replace midwives you know, with physicians, and it was just like the beginnings of, of you know, an obstetric uh, profession. Um, they didn't really even know what they were doing very well um, in obstetrics, but um, the idea was to corral women into hospitals, and they offered them uh, the stick. You know, the stick was that they they trashed basically midwives as being unfit, unclean, unsafe, um, abortionists. You know, they just threw any mud that they could throw, they threw at midwives. And at the same time, they offered women pain-free childbirth. Right. And so they called it that. It was, it turns out it wasn't pain-free. They just administered drugs that made women forget. Mm-hmm. And that was called twilight sleep. Right. And so within, you know, a few generations, um, women were giving birth in hospitals midwives were either driven out of business or driven underground because all of a sudden what they were doing was the practice of medicine because of the way the definition had been had been phrased in these physician licensure laws in every state and so in in many states midwifery was made actually um illegal Mm -hmm. and um in some states it was a felony to, to practice midwifery. Um, in other states, it was just completely marginalized. Licensure authority was given to the Board of Medicine or the Department of Health. But in many states, um, you know, for example, oh, Alabama, Pennsylvania, um, come to mind quickly as states that, that they just stopped issuing licenses and so right. it was possible to get licensed. And so, you know, there we were with you know, midwifery being almost wiped off uh, the, the, the face of healthcare professions in the U.S., which is not the case in Europe. Um, it was completely different in Europe. The organized medicine did not succeed in doing that. But here, so then what happened was um, in the 1920s, 
saw kind of a reviving or a saving of, of midwifery um, under the guise of nurse midwifery in the style of England. And um, as you know, you know, there in Kentucky, of course, the Frontier School, uh, Mary Breckenridge and uh, the Frontier Nursing Service in mm-hmm. Kentucky was one aspect of that. Of, yeah, the of midwives on horseback. Back. Right, mm-hmm. right, and very famous. And also in New York City, um, an, an organization called Maternity Associates um, was, was founded, or Maternity Association, maybe it was called, was founded. That organization still exists, but it calls itself now Childbirth Connection. But at the time, initially, it was, it was sort of a settlement house kind of source for poor women to have access to midwifery services. Um, and there was a, a home birth practice associated with it. So um, it, um, so anyway. Well, and it's, or, it's sort of just been uh, creeping back ever since, right? Yes, and, and nurse midwives have been trying to reestablish it as, as this hybrid nursing and plus midwifery. Um, and they're licensed in all 50 states plus, you know, D.C. Um, but then in the 60s and 70s, traditional midwifery had a rebirth, as it were. And um, in, in the hippie communities that were... Mm-hmm developing around the country, um, women were recognizing a call to midwifery, which of course is what happens in human communities, is that women in human, you know, in, mm-hmm. in human communities become midwives because women help other women give birth and always have. So right. um, those midwives... Um, well, and let me, let me just make the distinction for anyone listening that the the vast majority of nurse midwives work in hospitals and yes. have always worked in hospitals. Um, yes. Well, not always. I shouldn't say always, but for you know, for the most part, have worked in hospitals. By the nineteen sixties and seventies, they began to work ex- almost exclusively in hospitals. Right. Um, and by the nineteen eighties, birth centers began to be founded, and nurse midwives. But about only about five percent of nurse midwives work in birth centers or out of hospital. Ninety-five percent are in hospitals today. Right. So, so the other types of midwives <clears throat> primarily attend births outside of hospitals. Yes, and they those do. are and those are the ones that um, definitely experience the most. I guess persecution is probably persecution and prosecution. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, because if they're in a state where they don't have a legal um, status, status, a legal status, a legal basis for being there, they're subject to, or to either prosecution or what are called cease and desist civil orders to be required to stop practicing. And, um, and so um, since the early eight, late 70s, early 80s, on a state-by-state basis, um, out-of-hospital midwives, who are also called direct entry midwives, have worked in, um, in to try to um, regain licensure status. Um, because the only way you can overcome a medical practice law, which gives everything to medicine, is to get the same legislature to write you a law that gives you the midwifery part as well. Because you can have overlap of practices between professions, 
But to do that, you need to have a statute as well. Mm -hmm. You need the same, you know, you need the legislature has to give you authority to override this medical monopoly. Right. Which is what you've been doing, um, organizing with consumers around the country for years now. State yes. by state. Um, yeah, my practice, um, I, I continued representing nurse midwives for many years and for a while became general counsel of the American College of Nurse Midwives. Um, but um, in the, I, I guess I would say for about 15 years now, I have also represented uh, what are called certified professional midwives because those out-of-hospital midwives have developed a certification exam. Um, they've developed schools and programs. They have national professional associations, the Midwives Alliance of North America, National Association of Certified Professional Midwives. They've just professionalized um, in various ways. And um, I've been working with groups of, of licensed midwives, um, licensed direct entry midwives, many of whom are CPMs today, certified professional midwives, now for over 15 years. That's, yeah. you know, it's, and we established the, uh, the big push for midwives about 10, almost 10 years ago. We need to take another really quick break. And then I want to talk about some of the, some of the things that those midwives and the consumers who support them are up against. Okay, great. Okay. We'll be right back with Birth Aloud. You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. And this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. And we're back with Susan Jenkins. Susan, will you talk a little bit about what consumers and midwives are up against when they try to get laws passed to allow midwives to practice? Sure, Kristen. Um, we, uh, people who work in this field about 10 years ago um, saw that it, it, states were passing laws to allow midwives to practice legally, to give them legal scopes of practice, to establish midwifery board, all the kinds of things that we expect from any kind of a health profession. Um, that it was happening gradually on a state-by-state -state basis, but that everyone was trying to reinvent the wheel, you know, come up with the same um, arguments to the, for the legislature, the same advocacy tools. And so about 10 years ago, a group coalition of state organizations called the Big Push for Midwives campaign, that's what we called it, the Big Push for Midwives, um, it's a great name. <laughs> well, we wanted it to be catchy. We wanted to brand it. We wanted people to remember it. Um, and so we've been, so these groups have been working together to bring more and more states into what we call the, you know, the legal column as opposed to the um, illegal column. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so what, what, at this point, we have 32 states. Uh, we still have 18 states plus the District of Columbia where midwives cannot practice legally. Mm -hmm. um, if they do so, um, they are subject to arrest or cease and desist orders. Um, there are some states where they're not bothered too much. In other states, it's impossible for them to practice. Um, they, you know, they are sort of 
believe it or not, <laughs> they're hounded down, they're arrested. Um, I'm aware of midwives uh, in this century who've been handcuffed and spent the night in jail. Right, right. Well, and having their homes raided. Have their homes you raided. Know, their drug dogs. Their businesses completely suspended, you know, until they lose their livelihood. Um, um, in 19, uh, in 19, no, in 2007 and eight, midwives were arrested in Ohio and their computers were confiscated so that the, uh, the police could find out the names of other midwives. Wow. So wow. what you should know about this, Kristen, right there in, in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, there are some really some great folks who are working with the legislature to try to uh, convince them to pass a law mm -hmm. in Kentucky uh, that would license midwives. In fact, I think you had yeah. kind of some success last week. Yeah, well, um, actually, I did a show on it recently. Actually, you know what? It was the very first show, I, uh, the very first radio show I ever did was on the, um, the Kentucky licensure efforts. And um, I believe that the 1990s were the last time um, that midwives were actually getting arrested. And as you said, um, Kentucky used to give licenses to midwives and they just stopped doing it um, mm -hmm. a few decades ago. And so, so yeah, so so mostly families, a few midwives, but mostly families have been working to um, to get licensure here in Kentucky, and it's been it's been a pretty interesting um, thing to watch. Um, you know, it's in in some ways it's just been sort of a textbook. Um, everything that we've been talking about, as far as organized medicine versus um, you know, these women are basically small business owners. Yes, and small business um, owners and the women who and working families right <laughs> the, the women and families who want to be you know who want to be their midwives say clients rather than patients but you could also look at it as customers um mm -hmm. and they are they're doing an excellent job typically what happens is and and kentucky is a good example of this is the, that there's a consumer organization and and the big push is consumer-driven as much, if not more so, than midwife-driven because consumers want to be able to have access uh, to, um, to midwives at, at home or in birth centers. They, they want to have options besides only hospital care with, with physicians or hospital care with midwives, with nurse midwives. And so it's consumers going to their legislators, <laughs> the constituents going to their legislators mm -hmm. and saying, um, you know, would you please do this for us? Because right now we don't want to have to use an illegal midwife who could get shut down halfway through my pregnancy. Um, you know, or I, I don't want to get in trouble with, um, you know, child welfare because I've used an illegal practitioner to give birth. And these things have happened in other states. Um, a family lost their, their baby for about four months when child welfare, um, just you know, came in and and and, and took her mm -hmm. because they had used a, a an illegal home birth midwife. Yeah. Well, sadly, that doesn't surprise me. Um, no. I hear about things like that. I think probably the most immediate and real fear 
is, um, is the lack of communication and collaboration if and when someone actually does need to go to the hospital for some reason. And well, the exactly. myth, yeah, yeah. The problem has been that physicians and hospital administrators, hospital risk managers, even, uh, uh, even malpractice insurance companies that work with physicians um, have the illogical and inaccurate belief that a physician who accepts um, you know, a, a transfer from a home birth midwife mm -hmm. or a referral, let's think of it as a referral even from a home birth midwife, um, is going to be liable for everything the midwife did is going to be the deep pocket if there's a lawsuit involving that case. And, and let's, let's give people a little background on this. Um, home birth is safe. Home birth has been established. It's, it's really, really safe. Um, there's this, you know, the st different studies say different things about whether um, hospital birth is marginally safe or not. The problem, the only reason that home birth would not be safe is if you had problems being able to make the transition from home to hospital, should there be an emergency. But everyone knows that hospitals allow 30 minutes, you know, in, in an emergency to get someone from, you know, who's, who's in labor to move them to the surgical suites so that they can have a C-section. So it's, it's timely. It's, it's, it's getting there in time. This would be so much easier and so much timelier and so much safer if hospitals and physicians would cooperate. But instead, they operate from a space of maybe a fear where they're, you know, they're, they're afraid or they're told to be afraid um, that they shouldn't get involved in midwifery because they will get sued for everything the midwife did. That is completely untrue. But you can see why midwives need lawyers, can't you? Yeah. Well, I want to I add actually to what they, you said. They have to deal with, you know, they have to deal with or, or organized medicine because the primary opponent, and this is true in Frankfurt and in every state capital in the country where we've, you know, had to go through this process or still go through this process, the usually the main opponent is organized medicine. It's the state medical society or the local ACOG that stands for American college of obstetricians and gynecologists, the local ACOG. Right. And what is that? But fear of competition. Yeah. Well, I want to, I want to add before we go to a break to what you said about home birth being very safe. Um, I'm not someone who says birth is safe ever in any circumstances. Um, I don't, and this is just my opinion. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you, Susan. Um, I'm just offering a different perspective. I wouldn't personally say birth in any location is either safe or is unsafe. It is, um, uh, there are inherent risks no matter who you are or where you are. Um, but the, but the thing that I think is really interesting about home birth is that what we do know from research is the, the, two, the two main factors in determining how safe it is in any given situation are, as you mentioned, 
the ability to transfer appropriately and quickly and have collaboration and communication when you need to go to a hospital. The other one is um, uh, candidate selection. So that means who is actually giving birth at home? Is it a healthy, low-risk person? Or is it someone who has, you know, a higher-risk pregnancy with a higher risk of complications or of more serious complications, et cetera, et cetera? And what I think is so interesting is in both of these things, we see the, the medical community actually making it less safe in the ways that they can. And in that second, for that second item, um, I say that because I see, I, I see and I hear from and I talk to women who are not ideal candidates for home birth, who feel pushed into home birth because their only option in a hospital would be an automatic C-section or, um, you know, a certain course of treatment that is, you know, that is like a, like an ultra high risk intervention course that might not actually be appropriate for that individual person. But they know that if they show up at a hospital, they don't have any options in their care. They only have that one, um, they only have that one choice, which isn't really a choice if you don't have any other choices. Um, so an right. So an example would be like vaginal birth after cesarean in a state like Kentucky, where uh, almost 93% of women who have C-sections will go on to have all future C-sections because hospitals refuse to let them labor and give birth vaginally if they've had a prior C-section. And so that's, you know, that's another example of where um, you'll see some of those women kind of somewhat reluctantly choosing to give birth at home because their only other option is a mandatory surgery in a hospital. You're absolutely right, Kristen. And that's why some of the main issues that um, arise when we're working on legislation in a particular state is, is what, will, what will the quote-unquote scope of practice for that midwife be? And, well, we uh, do need to go to a break really quickly. Can we pick that up when we come back? We can. Okay, we'll be right back with Birth Aloud. We're back with Susan Jenkins. You're absolutely right. The problem is that we need to deal with this in legislation because organized medicine tries to narrow the scope of practice for midwives in these laws, and it tries to do so by taking away the ability of, of, of midwives to do, say, vaginal birth after cesarean at home. And while it's maybe not ideal, the fact is that a woman who can't give birth by VBAC at home is not going to be having a hospital VBAC instead. That is right. not the alternative. The alternative is, as you say, 93%, 90% state after state likelihood that she's going to be having a repeat C-section, which is more dangerous for the mother and, and, and more dangerous for the mother and babies in future pregnancies. The more so, but you, you know all these things, but the public may not, may not be that aware. So the big push for midwives, we've got a website, okay, so it's pushformidwives.org. We've got a really nice map and chart, which shows as new states become, quote unquote, become legal. Um, and our two new victories, uh, in December, the state of Michigan 
um, passed their law, which does not restrict scope of practice, I'm pleased to say. Practice issues are very fluid. They can change. It's, you, know, you, you don't know what the studies are going to be down the road. And it's easier to change in rules when it's the experts deal, who are on the board dealing with it. And so that's the appropriate way to deal with scope of practice is to put it in as a rulemaking function. Um, and the same thing just happened in South Dakota. In South Dakota, the, the legislature agreed to leave that for rulemaking. And, and that's what every state should do. It's, it's an easy way to give it to for the legislature rather than struggling with these things which are not familiar to them. And, and that's what actually all professions do. There's no reason that right. the have to do that for midwives. They should just treat midwives like every other. I, I was just, I was just thinking the same thing, Susan. It, it's funny that um, that we even have to consider why is it that you know uh, people around the country are always, you know, going back and back and back to say, okay, guys, can we not do this in statute? <laughs> you know? it's because it's because organized medicine is more powerful before legislatures than they are before regulatory bodies. Yeah. It's always been interesting to me to watch how, um, you know, the state um, hospital organization representative, you know, will come in and say, we think midwives should be able to do this and shouldn't be able to do that. And, you know, X, Y, Z. And that recommendation is taken extremely seriously and it's given a lot of weight and then you have midwives come in who say, well, you know, we're, we're actually the experts in midwifery and um, we can give you information and examples and best practices from all around the country and even around the world. And, you know, here's really how it should be done. And there's like these, this just Suspicion. lack of credibility. Yeah. It's like they, they just, they, nobody the, believes them. The they, you know? <laughs> let, me, let me tell you why. All right. Let me tell you why. Okay. Hospitals and physicians call themselves stakeholders. They're not. They're competitors. They shouldn't be treated as stakeholders. The stakeholders are consumers, the ones who use them, who use midwives yeah. or else. Wow. <laughs> and and we, we need to get off the big push because I, I know we're getting toward the end and I promised you the epilogue story. But <laughs> one last thing I want to say is those bills in South Dakota and Michigan passed with overwhelming numbers in the majority in favor of those, even though organized medicine and hospitals still weren't happy with them. Mm -hmm. we, don't need to sh we don't need to keep them happy. The only reason they really listen to is follow the money, Kristen. They make, they make cam campaign contributions. They're always there at the legislature. And legislators just, you know, give them, give them a seat at the table. Well, consumers have to take that seat at the table and show their expertise and you can make a difference. And that's what happened in these past two states. And I would say, especially when we're talking about women's health care, women need to be at the table. And their families, but you know, because families are important here. This is family health care we're talking about, um, you know, because dads get really involved in out-of-hospital birth. Um, not that hospital dads don't also, but you know, there's, there's just this strong support system. Well, the, the onus of responsibility is totally different too, isn't it? In, yeah, in home birth. Exactly. You're, you so, really are responsible for your own health and wellness with the support of your healthcare provider, not the like direction and authority of your healthcare provider, no, no, which the, is a different, the, you know, the, a different the, way of doing it. Women, women have to be 
um, take responsibility. Let, let's put it this way. Women who choose to, who, who decide they want to give birth at home or in a birth center are owning their birth in a particular, the, the, you know, the giving birth in, in a certain way and, mm-hmm. and are probably more likely to want to have more control over their own birth. And that seems to be a characteristic. In fact, very interestingly, a national survey that was done a couple of years ago by by, um, Childbirth Connection has shown that rather large percentage of women, something like 18% of women, said that they would be willing to either give birth at home next time or would be interested in considering it. And something like, I don't know, 37% of women said they would be interested in giving birth in a birth center. Oh, I think it was even more than that. It was even more than I, that. I remember being it shocked the at the numbers. Yes, it was in the 50s. It was over a half. <laughs> you know, I've got a client in another state, and I can't say which state, but it's a city that has a, a large number of birth centers. And they told me they found out from a local advertising public relations firm that the hospital, which had tried to, <laughs> tried to hire someone to do anti-home birth billboard campaign or something like that. The hospital was losing something like $900,000 a month. So, I mean, wow. we're really talking about competitors. These are competitors who are bad-mouthing midwives and, and families who choose to have out-of-hospital birth. They're doing that because they have a financial reason for doing so. Yeah, you know, and the, the last show that I did was actually, um, I was talking with a doula and we talked about obstetric violence and obviously, you know, that's, that's a topic that I'm um, pretty, pretty involved in. You've done excellent work in that field. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. Um, And it seems, it seems really clear to me that um, the argument by hospitals and physicians for hospitals and physicians, the arguments really revolve around, um, you know, scaring people into, you know, needing their services, even when people are saying, I don't need your services. Um, And um, as opposed to improving those services so that people aren't running scared from the hospitals and the physicians with whom they've already had previous experience. Okay, we're going to run out of time. All right, so after I won the case at the Supreme Court, Standard practice for the Supreme Court is that it's clerk, and we're not just talking like an everyday clerk, but the clerk of the Supreme Court, which is an important position, sends a letter to the Court of Appeals that the case came from saying, this is the decision, you know, we overturned you or we upheld you, here are the files back. And that letter is always CC'd to the lawyers. So I got a copy of the letter along with my two male opponents, one represented the insurance company, one represented the chiropractors, and they were both, they both had ESQ or Esquire rather written after their name. And I didn't, I was Ms. Susan Jenkins and damn it, I had won. So I called the clerk's office and I said, "Um, you know, I've got this letter and it says, Ms. Susan Jenkins, did you not know who was counsel? Did you think that I was a paralegal in the office because I'm a lawyer too? And I was told, oh no, it is the policy of the Supreme Court to only address male attorneys as Esquire. Now this was 1982, and um, there were there were maybe 25% of law, law schools where you know were women. It was women were becoming a bigger presence in the law. So I I was kind of 
not happy with this. So I told the Women's Bar Association of DC and they said, would you let us deal with it? And I said, okay. And so they asked one of their members who was a woman judge on the DC Court of Appeals who was friends with the guy who was the clerk and she contacted him. He wrote back to her saying, well, I guess we'll have to do it. Esquire is a male term. We will, what we'll do is we'll use ESQ, we'll use the abbreviation for men and women, but we'll know that when it's a woman, it maybe stands for Esquire-S, you know, which cute, right? <laughs> but, um, but then in the PS, and it was the PS that really killed it for me, in the PS, he said, personally, I think Esquire-Et would be adorable or something like that. And then my husband just wife, couldn't give it to you, could they? Couldn't, no, no, can't <laughs> give it without us something snide. So you know, and, and when we ask, when we have to ask men for things, of course, well, that's that's a different conversation. But I mean, you know, why why are women asking men, you know, to to, <laughs> to be allowed to use a midwife, as you said in a very excellent blog once? Why, why are, are we asking doctors if doctors, if women yes, should have midwives? Yes. If anyone wants to read that, that's at birthmonopoly.com slash midwives. Your lives will be changed. You must read that. That is a wonderful blog. So the P.S. All right. My husband's law partner had an Oxford English Dictionary in his office, just happened to have one. He looked up Esquire S and found out that it meant the laundress for the inns of court. (laughs) Or a small slave girl who carried a musket and walked after the troops <laughs> in whatever century. <laughs> wow, you really can't make this up. Of court was kind of setting as well. So, so anyway, I was not, I was not a happy camper at that point. And so, there, there was a legal newspaper in D.C. It may still be there. I don't subscribe anymore. Though, called Legal Times that used to have a gossip column about events involving lawyers and things involving lawyers called inadmissible you know what else would lawyers call it (laughs) and i knew the reporter you know who the columnist who manages so i called him and i gave him the entire story plus the letter and they published the whole thing so then i was really really happy the women's bar association by the way wasn't that pleased but i was happy (laughs) well so a couple of nights later (laughs) the epilogue epilogue is this is, you know, my own personal little, you know, women's rights demonstration just on my own, right? So a couple of nights <laughs> later, I, I'm at a party that's mostly lawyers, and I'm talking to a, a partner at a, um, a, at a law firm that I knew, and another lawyer comes over, and even though I'm talking to this man, this other man, of course, walks up and just completely interrupts me because, of course, you know, <laughs> you've had that happen to you as well, hasn't it? <laughs> Happens all the time, and so... So he interrupts me and he says to, you know, my friend, did you see what that bitch did to, you know, Mr. The clerk. In, 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 in inadmissible? And, and I was so pleased that I could stand there and kind of wave my hand in the air and say, you know what? That bitch was I. <laughs> and, and he listened to me then. So that's my story. And uh, I'm sticking to it. I love that story. I do too. I actually first heard that story from your husband. You were like, oh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And he was, he was so proud of you. I thought it was wonderful. You know, my husband, who's also my law partner, just walked in the room a few minutes ago and he's sitting here smiling. Thank you so much, Susan. Bye-bye. Okay. Take care. This has been Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, 
can email me at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLXU. We'll see you next time.